Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, number 300 of the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles for the last 300 episodes and for hopefully the next 300 more. I have been Nico and you guys can find me snicting along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another X-Men X Wednesday here and that is exactly the right way for this show to celebrate such a major milestone. I feel like we should have like a lenticular cover and a dozen very for this episode. As always, we're going to bring you some amazing coverage of new titles like X Deaths of Wolverine number three, but we're also going to bring you some celebratory episode number 300 coverage, including a special segment we call X Lives and X Deaths of the X-Men, as well as taking a look at the two special issues contained in the Chris Claremont Marvel Made Paragon Collection. For those who aren't familiar, it was a special edition look back at Chris Claremont's time on the X-Men that had had to be pre-ordered and if it hit certain numbers of pre-orders there were stretch goals and it contains two special stories marvel made wolverine number one which was meant to from the original description kind of go with the original wolverine and frank miller miniseries but maybe feels a little bit more like the wolverine ongoing and even then can't wait to talk about it as well as uncanny x-men 140.5 a prelude to futures past so we've got some amazing material here for you guys today but to kick things off here's that incredible discussion x lives and x deaths of the x-men so many characters contain wolverine-esque multiple Multitudes, and we couldn't wait to discuss it. It has been our pleasure to bring this show to you for the last 300 episodes. Man, I'm just so excited to have hit this milestone with our crew and our listeners and our fans and our followers on Twitter, which don't forget, if you like what you hear, you can always follow us over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Enjoy this segment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a special conversation here on X's for Podcasts, celebrating 300 amazing episodes of talking about everybody's favorites, mutants, magic, and marvels, week after week through their many monthly titles. As always, I am Nico, and we have been snicting along these many X lives and X deaths of X-Men with me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Steven. Uh, You could find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Desiree on Twitter. Desiree and I hope you survive the experience and don't get elected to be the president and then die on your election day. Boo. <laughs> Man, that is one of those stories that comes up a lot. Okay, backstory. <laughs> Quick backstory. We were just talking in the green room about how Polaris stands 
stands are living like it's the capital, right? But Dazzler stands are like District 12 because they're oh. constantly destroyed, but they will not die. And yeah. Disco like, never dies, Nico. Disco never dies. Just living off of one panel at the end of House of X, like it's the biggest thing that's happened in this entire re- regroup. Uh, that it, was an amazing panel, though. Like It was. Yes. It truly was. It really was. And then it nothing came was. of it. She got to have a campfire scene with canon okay like okay oh and date dr nemesis i love dr nemesis i just don't know if i love them together yeah he's, he's a great character but mm. i loved the science team i'll be honest i would smash uh, oh same yeah, with oh, yeah. the, with the mushroom head, head. like wow. specifically hottest with the fucking cordyceps brain living for it this is the content you come for <laughs> um i not sure how I feel about that. I mean, I love the idea for him, but I'm not sure if, if I find that particularly sexy. <laughs> oh, no, it's sexy. He's got psychedelic mushrooms you can eat while you're with him. So, yeah. Yeah, no, if you can get buzzed while you're also banging, that's that's a absolutely swipe the correct direction, right? But, but mushrooms usually smell. Do they smell? Well, I also have a question. Before we get too far from Dazzler, can we agree that the most un- uniquely aggravating phrase in the history of X-Men comics is hi, I'm Allie. No. Hi. <laughs> okay, yes! So... She is so coked up too at the time. Oh my god. <laughs> it is somehow the phrase. Everybody remembers it. I, Everybody I, knows where they were when I they read it. just recently referenced that in a post in my House of North Star group because I still find it to be so freaking ridiculous and meme worthy. Somebody, like literally I think Josh, I can't say his last name right Corneon. now. Yes, he literally Really drew like that panel and it's just so perfect and iconic oh it's good it's really good <laughs> so if we're already talking about these characters it's time to let you guys in on what's going on today we are here to discuss the incredible multitudes that exist within each and every one of our favorite x-men now some of us have longtime favorites that we can't stop talking about and some of us felt like talking about some secret favorites that don't come up as much but whoever you came here to talk about we're here to celebrate the x lives and x deaths of the x-men we're going to talk about our favorite characters our favorite versions of them some of our favorite titles or stories that featured them as well as some pretty cool alternate universe versions that deserve another look so let's start things off by telling everybody who we've brought today for show and tell i myself have brought everybody's favorite mutant teleporting badass blink i went the super obvious route and brought the big shiny pop star of mutantdom dazzler lila cheney <gasps> hey, i love cheney i love lila cheney except for the inappropriate relationship with cannonball uh-huh. i'll back that up but i mean obviously i think we all know you're talking dazzler yes Big shiny pop star, disco queen Dazzler. And I brought my namesake slash long lost brother, Nathan Summers, Cable, and all his many versions. And I brought Vertigo. I'm just kidding. I brought Emma Frost. You can talk about the alternate versions of Vertigo. That would be amazing. <laughs> I'm okay. like, I planned all my notes around this being Emma Frost. <laughs> I... This episode will not be about her. So. I just wanted to know what your reaction would be. Let's start with a quick talk about why we love these characters. I myself, when I first saw Blink, it was actually in Age of Apocalypse. I kind of missed Generation Next and wound up in love with this idea of this badass archer who threw shards. Like the throwing is very me and the energy construct kind of power of it. Very Green Lantern, something I'm very into. She fit the kitty rogue 
Jubilee Bill that I always imagined myself the boy version of under Logan. Never really crazy about the Mr. Creed of it. Fuck that. But I really identified with Blink as a kid. It was at the right time. And then when I discovered Exiles, Exiles helped me get back into comic because it gave me a chance to dial through a multitude of stories and experience them in new digestible ways, almost like a best of animated series. And I often hold Blink as a major force in that revitalization of comics for me. Why did you guys pick the characters you picked? My Dazzler fandom is odd, maybe. When I was first getting into comics, I was like, who the fuck is this campy-ass disco queen? Like, ugh. You know, it's the 90s. And then I brought Dazzler because since we're talking about all the alternate versions, really, I started to fall in love with Dazzler as a character because of the Age of Apocalypse event. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, she's this cool, chain-smoking, like, really sarcastic, down-on-everything kind of character. And I'm like, I fucking love it. And I'm like, oh, I need this. And then going back and reading more of the Dazzler stories, I think I really fell in love with mainstream Dazzler and that uncanny X-Men annual with Horde where they all like they all show their fears and hopes and everything where her it shows her being torn between the responsibility of her parental expectations of becoming a lawyer her personal dreams of becoming a singer her responsibilities as a mutant to become a member of the X-Men and you know in the end in that annual she chooses the third road which is just to give up and I was like that's just such a tragic beat I fucking love it. So I chose Emma Frost because she is she was technically the reason why I got into comic the way that I am. So she's the reason why I'm here. I love her. I've I've enjoyed reading her throughout most of the literal entire time I've been reading since about 2004. She's probably the character in all of Marvel that I hold the most sentimental value with. I mean, I still just think she's a lame ripoff of Jack Diamond, but Oh, oh. my goodness. I cannot even believe you just said those words. <laughs> Telepathy turns to diamond, obsessed with Cyclops. I mean, I think Emma Frost is just a... I'm kidding. I know. I, like, I, I know you do. I, she yeah. is a wonderful character when written well. And I identify a lot with her. There's uh, aspects of her story that I relate to very heavily. I know that might sound really weird for people who don't personally know me, but I, I've always felt this weird kindredness to her. So Many people don't realize that Stephen put himself through high school working in an underground Victorian styled sex club. So TK, I wanted to ask you why <laughs> you connect with Cable. Yeah, so I got into comics in the early 90s and really just kind of dove face first into it without having any idea what was going on. And it took a mix of the animated series and just picking up whatever issues I could to over the course of, and I was, I was young, I was like five or six. So a lot of it was going over my head and I wasn't really understanding what was happening. We talked in an episode a while back about like the ridiculous headcanons that to me were not headcanons. I was just missing what was going on. So for a really long time, I thought there was something between Angel and Storm. Like, and it, I was just completely wrong, but I was a kid. I just wasn't getting it. So it took me a really long time to sort of situate myself in the X-Men universe and figure out what I was relating to and connecting to. Generation X were my teen kids, but I never 
never had like a specific character that I was like, that's so me. And when Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix came out and we got to look at Teen Cable for the first time, that's when I really found a character that I connected with. You know, somebody with amazing, but somehow also neglectful parents that both love him so much, but also managed to fail him and not be there for him in so many ways. You know, somebody who feels burdened with a lot of pressure to do certain things and to be a certain person, but doesn't really know how to do it and is constantly challenged beyond what he believes is reasonable or capable and just keeps going forward. I do not have a clone that I'm aware of, but, you know, maybe we'll find out in a couple years. Yeah, let us know if you do find this clone. For sure. Especially if he's despotic. Any clone of me would be. Now, you said something that actually, like, all right, so I'm a big sensory guy, and anyone who knows me knows that, like, literally, if there's anything I love as much as uh, comics and cute boys, it's definitely food. (laughs) And there's something about a perfect smell of a perfect cinnamon roll that takes me to the Main Street Bakery walking down in Magic Kingdom when I'm a little kid every time. You know, it's, it's like a magical experience. And I actually had it just now when you said there were head cannons you couldn't shake i had this set of x-men trading cards i loved more than life and it was the ultra fleer that had those beautiful bill sinkeviches in there which is why i always thought that dazzler was the coolest fucking mutant in the world yep, I because those well. she looked so beautiful on those cards and one of the first things i did when we started this show is i bought myself a set of those cards and to have them again and there were so many characters at that point who were double in some way there was a card for sun Spot and Rain Five. There was a card for Moonstar and Danny Moonstar as yes. Mirage. There was a card for you know a number of people that were uh, Revanche and Psylocke, and they were like, oh, but who are they? And I, for years, thought that Beryl and Wolvesbane were just two more cards of the same person. <laughs> oh, my oh my goodness! I had a similar experience with uh, Boom Boom and Sienna Blaze. Yeah. Yeah, their cards are so fucking similar. Did anybody else have any like that? Anything where you like you just you thought the wrong thing for years and it took like getting into fandom to straighten it out? I mean, I really did think that Feral and Thorn and uh, Wolfsbane were sometimes in- conflated in my head as well. <laughs> but then I would always be like, okay, so Feral and Thorn are the ones with the bad hair. Got it. The internet wasn't that great back then, but I was a little weird kid who would like go buy all the little handbooks and be like, oh, cool, that's who that character is. Like, oh. so like, yeah, I, I never really had that but i would always but it really started my weird fandom obsession with being going and doing the research and finding whatever tools i could i completely love your your description of you know going out and buying the handbooks i was very similar i had a lot of the ohatmus and uh steven and i frequently would pour over our ohatmus and oh my god yeah there are so many lost bits (laughs) of amazing comic merchandise out there and does anybody have a favorite weird bit of why the fuck did this ever exist X-Men merchandise for me there was once upon a time Chef Boyardee X-Men shaped SpaghettiOs uh, I need for to me know it was just that. a lot of the <laughs> toys with characters that were just so not really prominent in X-Fandom but they were very easy to make or make a spin on Kane Weapon X okay and there was a Kylan toy in the- <laughs> 
Tusk and then the Shi'ar metal dude both having the little dudes. That, like, it's the exact same model with just slight embellishments, so you can pull two characters out of the same mold very easily. There really are so many that are made from the same mold. There's literally an Emma Frost figure that is from a mold of another character, and I cannot remember for the life of me which one it is. Yeah, my, my favorite toy that's of the same mold is the Rogue and Polaris one. So, like, they didn't even change the power upper punch <laughs> on the Polaris figure. So like like if you look at the the thing, it's like the for the Lorna Dane, it's like now nah, with power upper punch, which like what it's a magneta punch. Yeah, <laughs> and she's got a gun. And the <laughs> little green gun with it. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like what the hell is this? <laughs> It makes no sense. I think one of my Emma figures literally comes with this weird spear with psionic energy coming out of the tip. No, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, yes, what? she's a Simitar. Like, she's a Simitar. Why does Emma Frost have a Simitar? And, like, there's a weird a- a Age of Apocalypse Rogue and Gambit one I just, like, tracked down recently. And the Age of Apocalypse Rogue is just a repainted that Emma Frost figure. And it's the fucking most hilarious thing. Yes, it's the face, right? The face and the hair. Oh, yeah. And it's the whole body mold. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> like you've got the like you can tell where there's like little the little straps from Emma Frost on no! the like, yeah. that's insane. Do you know how many Electras come with psychic knives full of their sum oh, totality? Oh my god, so many. So like and they're it's so crazy to me that that even exists. I almost bought one at a at a flea market recently, actually, because I thought it was so ridiculous. And I'm certainly not making fun of anybody who has a job that I could never do, but I growing up, I'm I'm a bad person. Growing up, I used to say that my Jubilee in the plastic trench coat action figure was young Rosie O'Donnell. Oh my god, I remember that. And you used to scream gooch balls like all I the did. Time. <laughs> I would have her launch the energy and scream gooch balls. You really did. He really did. I cannot even believe that you just reminded me about that. Yeah. Oh god. It was certainly a very thick, uh, aggressive take. All of that, and we never got a Shadow Cat action figure because they banned her from the animated series. What? I did not even know that. Hey, but we finally got that gorgeous pirate kate figure from marvel unlimited plus that thing with that lockheed and that sword with the oh it's so good i want that excellent job i actually once upon a time ago uh, around 1994 um i actually had a whole collection of marvel masterpieces trading cards by greg and tim hildebrand and one of my cards was actually white queen and i remember being so obsessed with her because she was so beautiful and they even talk about how they like designed her her look after Barbie and I was a Barbie boy back in the day so so I had this weird obsession with her and I didn't even know who she was because this was before I actually read comics Silver Sable that's who her figure is frequently switched with Silver Sable oh I knew I'd get there okay <laughs> sorry about that let's jump into X lives and X deaths of things that aren't me asking questions that were not the questions I asked you guys to prepare so um you know when I think about Blink and somebody says to me what's your definitive Blink story uh, you know I think my definitive Blink and my definitive Blink story kind of go hand in hand I love New Mutants Blink uh, you know she's a really great development of the early Gen X Blink that we never got but for Ooh, me yeah, yeah right oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. what a great era that was but 
I'm I'm an Exiles guy. And like either classic Exiles or reimagined where she has, you know, the Afro-Caribbean heritage and she is such a dynamic, unique, beautiful statement on a character that was always meant to have those kinds of layers. Yeah. Uh, no absolutely. matter which way you want to go. I think it's cool that she loves sex. Like that's actually really important. Like she's not prudish despite coming from like a war-torn hell world. She revels in getting to enjoy being playful with the man she chooses to spend time with and she has respect she has an understanding of how to lead i just think that blink in exiles is such a standout character being written extremely well especially when written by jed winnick i would love to know more about your guys characters and runs that you know your definitive run for that character okay so for mine i have there's two, and they're they're pretty recent for Dazzler. I would say her run in A Force and her run in Extreme X Men Volume Two are like yeah. the yes, real definitive Dazzler stories. You know, A Force shows how she deals with trauma and how she moves past the trauma of what happened with Mystique. And Extreme X Men Volume Two is just like probably the most competent, best written Dazzler I've ever fucking seen. Like she's she's smart, she's tough, she's fun, she's also growing as a leader like fuck yeah yeah she was oh my god i loved that whole book she was phenomenal in it this was originally going to be a very different segment and i was just going to record a bunch of um answers from our team uh like by myself in the corner but nathan was like i'm around and i was like i'm making a segment and so we're like recording this live day of i'm so excited like this is this is gorilla podcasting and like you know we're we're doing it right and uh everybody's wearing shirts about revolution they don't understand and then we're putting it in a nike sneaker commercial and then paul's really angry about it because michael was supposed to be his friend so this was originally all of that was relevant so this was originally (laughs) going to be a segment about wolverine because i have very few interests and i (laughs) yeah about that i was so nervous when you asked me because i was like what what are my favorite wolverine solo titles um (laughs) well I got answers from original show creator Jonah, who was, of course, on the first episode with me, the preview episode with me, and has been on so much of these 300 episodes. And when I asked him for his definitive Wolverine, he said, Wolverine making out big time with Hercules. And there is no way that you can talk about that without saying, hey, Greg Pak, thank you so much. And I want to also personally, on behalf of the show, for the last 295 episodes where we've referred to you as Greg Pak, we were correct by Alyssa Wong in our recent Alyssa Wong interview and it is Greg Pak and we will be getting that right going forward. My definitive run is Cable and Deadpool. I talk a lot about how much I love Fabian Icieza. I think it's a really important turning point for Cable insofar as we start to really see him move away from the Soldier X really gritty, lots of guns and especially in the first couple arcs he touches on a lot of the mutant messiah stuff that is part and parcel with the cable and summer's gray mythology we get a lot more powers used from him and there is a very homosexual undertone to 
the relationship that develops between Cable and Deadpool. It's just a fantastic run, and especially the time that it comes out. It, it is, to me, it was for me in a time that I was really kind of bummed out about the decimation and what we were losing with mutants as a whole. Cable and Deadpool stood out as like a very special moment in time in spite of a lot of stories that I didn't love. Emma Frost has gone through a lot of transformations, essentially. Her personality has uh, shifted here and there. She's grown more and more throughout the course of her history. I would have to say out of pure sentimentality, I I do think that one of my favorite runs is Astonishing X-Men. It's what I first read her in. I think that my real favorite era, though, is the current one because a lot of the times she's been portrayed as Cyclops's girlfriend. (laughs) She lost a lot of her uh, autonomy, uh, unfortunately, when it comes to, you know, his story arc, his character development. And now that she's not so intrinsically tied in a romantic relationship with him, I think she found herself a lot more. Uh, But the, the Krakoan era, I think, is where she's really been shining. She's been doing a lot of power moves all for the benefit of... Hold on. Did you just say that she doesn't dance now? She makes diamond moves? (laughs) Did you just say that she is Krakoa White now? Is that what we just said? What? He's doing Cardi Cardi B lyrics as Emma Frost. This is his weird Al Emma Frost Cardi B. As Cardi B. Yes. Thank you, you, TK and Nathan, for being there with me. Steven, get off the show. I don't remember what I said now. I said she's been doing. You said that Emma makes power moves. And that was all Nico needed to take this that was and all run, I needed? Is run that, down the field with it. Is that not the correct <laughs> phrasing? No, your phrasing no, was you, absolutely fine. <laughs> you inspired me to be funny, you weird little Emma Frost loving man. I am. I know. Okay. Oh my gosh. Steven, how do you feel about some of the pre-astonishing but post-Hellfire Club stuff for Emma? Like when she's at the mansion, she's in the coma with Bobby and then Gen X. What do you feel about that in the Emma Frost? Hey, uh, she never outed Bobby. (laughs) Uh, Agreed. Uh, Well, I neither did adult Jean. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And and Rogue didn't either to Northstar when she knew all of that Agreed. Yes, very true. It's really out of character character that xavier didn't like i feel like I xavier know, right? <laughs> I, thank you for saying that i actually fully agree with you about that it's out of character that he didn't just bring a boy to the mansion and go bobby here's a new boyfriend for you like never saying anything else just being like i set you up so to answer your question tk let's go back even further than that to her hellfire days i firmly believe that you should never love every single aspect and decision your car- your favorite makes because nobody is perfect. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, Emma now forever has IVX, if you ever want to look at the time she did something fucking insane and stupid. And so now Hellfire can just be a great time. Yeah, but then she also did weirdly switch bodies with Storm in a really creepy story. Yeah, that's... Guys, I actually have a a piece of rare Emma Frost canon that no one ever talks about that I want to bring up, but does anybody else know that there was this one time Emma Frost (laughs) killed a horse? I gotta go. Oh, that was not a real horse. That was not a real horse. It was a psychic projection. We've seen her do that many times. She even did it with Cyclops during IVX. Also, that's a fucking baller move. Like, if you want to do 
power plays, <laughs> kill a fucking horse. I, that's not one of the. That is not a strike against her. Butter up game. The, the most famous horse that appeared in like one. Ugh, it is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> what about the time that Emma Frost, you know, psychically made Doug Ramsey think he was on like romantic dates with Kate? Can Can I ask a question? What is this podcast really about? Why did you invite me here? <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be all Emma Frostlander that I quit right now. No, I don't really quit, but <laughs> I love Emma. I love Emma. <laughs> she listen. She has had problematic uh, moments in history. Let's you know talk about that. She was written by a straight white man. She was written specifically to be a two dimensional villain and a foil for Xavier himself. You know she she did some really horrible horrible shitty things, and it is really you know unbelievable for for a lot of fans that believe that think she you know she changed but she's been a hero she's been helping people for what is it now over two decades it's well over two decades at this point it's almost three i get into fights about this with people you can go somewhere else with magneto's a bad guy because he has done some horrible horrible things and the worst thing he ever did was the last truly evil act he ever did and there is still some question about how much of him it was. So if you do the math by amount of time, Magneto is evil less than he's good. Yep. Yeah. Yes, Period. absolutely. You know, And we give Magneto a pass because of something very complex. We forgive and contextualize Magneto because the Holocaust was real and it is such an unfathomably horrible thing that when we hear a fictional character survived it, we imprint a sense of no one could have, I couldn't have survived that I can't even imagine what this person is going through, which is why they reverse engineered one for Emma Frost. She survived the Genosian attack. And that is the point at which it was made very clear that no matter how much they flirt with the possibility that Emma Frost is going to be evil for an extended time or not have mutants' best interests in mind, they'll always go back because they're not going to make a victim of a terrorist attack that is declared a terrorist attack on a protected class suddenly turn back on that tropism when that would be too dangerous with Magneto. I think also too Absolutely. in fandom there's also an inherent misogyny with the yes. fact that people are able yeah, to forgive mil. Wolverine for all of the murders he's done, Magneto for all of the shit he's done, and they can't forgive Emma, they can't forgive they can't forgive Rogue for fucking Carol Danvers. It's just like if you look at the characters that people are willing to forgive, they're always the male presenting characters and they are not doing that with the non-male presenting character. That's exactly it, and that is a point that I was actually going to make. You know, beyond the fact that she is a woman, you know, which is already a strike against her, she's sexual. She is sexy. You know, she she is presented as a sexually empowered woman. And, and intelligent. That's and terrifying. very smart. And that is scary for people. That is scary for men. Fuck. Right. Baller rich. She, Wayne rich. Which is her biggest superpower, let's face <laughs> you know like that she is wayne rich she is considered the richest woman in comic books you know a lot of that that is threatening for men and unfortunately you know we buy into those societal you know ways of thinking and all of a sudden it's emma frost who you don't trust it's emma frost who gets who who is going to turn on the team at any moment but wolverine has done very similar things you know sometimes worse you know maybe sometimes not as bad but there's go there's there's good and bad 
for both characters and if you're gonna accept it for one you should accept it for the other and you should probably look within and figure out what exactly it is that you're unable to get over you know so and to quote Eddie Izzard for a moment we talk about somebody killing somebody we're like oh that's bad but when we talk about like genocide we really begin to lose track right you kill somebody they you know hit you with a brick you're dead you kill 10 people they lock you up and they just stare at you you kill a hundred thousand people and they don't really know how to take down your regime so like i feel we can sort of say that planet x for magneto is the pinnacle most fucked up thing he could have done just this side of becoming an apocalypse level villain yeah. right yep. and absolutely if we cannot just forgive him that but be like he's hot daddy magnus hey daddy ben fine that all like if we but can be see, fine with that i was gonna say they've gone through so many hoops to retcon a lot of magneto's more villainous actions and they really haven't taken that same care to do that with like gamma or some of the other characters i think they've done it for magneto in that way where it's like we need to establish that we're not letting everybody be a, like fans and characters in the book we're not just letting them let genocide pass but the fact that the act and the story around it is so weaved into the Ma- the magneto mythos there is a level to which he is associated with the event he is in some way tied to it he's tied to all of new x-men and we do forgive it but there's a line i mean it's the same thing as figuring out how it wasn't gene gray who killed the dabari like we figure yeah. out ways in which we're making all the characters not be like oh yeah that's like my favorite genocider um, <laughs> Oh my god! But we, we still the, the you know these stories are still attached to those characters, and a certain degree of them are woven into the overall tapestry of those characters. Uh, for instance, aren't we getting Cassandra Nova in a book soon? Yes, exactly. So Ugh. people are gonna love and be obsessed with her, you know. So let's let's see the angle they go in with that. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, beyond the genocidal aspect, you know, Emma did come from an extremely and yes, it was established after, you know, her time in, in the Hellfire Club. She did come from an extremely abusive household. Uh, and that does fuck you up. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, fantastic point. And we we have seen a lot of that. We saw it in the flashbacks in New X-Men. And then we saw some version of it in the Emma Frost series. Yeah. Which, again, it's kind of muddled how much that is canon. And if we'll ever see any of that again. But yeah, I mean, things like even the stuff that she witnesses... Like, like what happens to Christian is traumatic for a young girl to have to experience and survive and then overcome. Yeah, sometimes it's just as traumatizing watching your siblings be abused as it is being abused yourself. Yeah. If I may point out that we're talking about the various versions of characters that exist within a singular version of that same character, which is of course the art of juggling the retcon. But I would also love to know what were your guys' favorite alternate universe versions of your those characters and is there a reason is there like a reflective reason i know for me it's so sad but i guess quote unquote real blink is the sacrificial lamb so she's not really my favorite uh you know my favorite is main exiles blink but the new exiles blink is such a fantastic fucking fresh of breath air whoa breath of fresh air (laughs) and i love her so much that i feel like that has to be my au pick it reflects back on who blink would be if she had been given a chance to grow and develop 
develop like so many characters instead of sort of shunted off to a side universe, left to languish, and never really become a main thing. What about these AU versions that you guys picked help you understand those characters better? And what AU versions are they? So for me, it is, of course, my actual namesake, Nate Gray. He reflects Cable so perfectly in that he is born with all of his powers at the fullest potential that he has and still suffers like Nate Summers from just having no idea what to do and constantly screwing up in trying to make things better but in doing so in a way where he doesn't worry about living up to the full potential of his powers he's already there and he still isn't getting it right and it's such an important reflection on the son of Cyclops and Jean Grey whoever that may be that at the end of the day and we've been seeing we saw this with Kid Cable too we saw this a lot in X of Swords you you might have all the privilege and all the potential and still just have no fucking clue what to do or how to get it right I love that yeah that was great yeah you think it would be the Age of Apocalypse because that's where I fell in love with Dazzler you'd think it would be the Dazzler from What If number 33 where she becomes the Herald of Galactus but she's not the coolest Herald of Galactus in a one-off story that is Aunt May is the Golden Oldie and I will stand by that for forever. Hard agree. her making a planet of like toast, like pastries for Galactus to just assist on. Ingenious. I don't know why nobody else has done that. I don't know why but I forgot that was a what if so in my mind that was actually canon. Okay, so like she did fight Terex as she was cosmically powered by the sound of a black hole by Galactus to go fight Terex so that did exist. <laughs> Yes, I remember that. (laughs) There was a what if, though, where she stayed as the herald of him. My favorite, because this is like the epitome of everything I love in a story version of Dazzler in alternate reality, is the Dazzler in Marvel Zombies versus Army of Darkness. Oh, good one. So you have like Camp Disco Dazzler, you have Camp Ash Williams, you have zombies, you have fucking Power Pack killing people off panel. (laughs) Like... It's everything, it's like everything I could love in a story, like combined into one, and it's just like pure joy for me. Pure joy. Although, if they ever made Dazzler the Golden Oldie, I would also appreciate that. When it comes to my favorite alternate version, one of my favorites is Steampunk Emma from Ghost Boxes, because she looks- I will never not stand Ghost Boxes. Gorgeous art. The most gorgeous art. Yes, that art was stunning. That that beautiful like corset and dress dress that she wore like i wish she would wear that in the actual books i I loved where emmeline ended up like her to like leave extreme x-men to like live in that society where mutants are gods that's perfect for her my actual favorite alternate universe version of emma is not actually in the books it is actually the wolverine and the x-men uh cartoon version of her voiced by i thought you were gonna say the fiona la hughes listen the mother of the i like January yes. Jones. She really ah! gave a lot of emotion to okay. you. Just been kicked off let's, your own podcast. Let's talk about January Jones really quick. She's Mostly. an amazing actress, but that was not for her. A lot of people do not realize this, but she was in my top three choices for actresses to get the role, and I got one of them. I was so excited, but then uh, the movie came out, and it was not what I was hoping. So, so. I just had wished it was when she was awake. Yeah. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad for Emma in this episode. <laughs> no, 
Emma Frost is a queen. We're talking yeah, we about how much her. better she we deserves. All her. Oh my god. So I, I think that January could have also done better. She literally loves the character. She she even recently made a video of like her Emma Frost figure. Like Oh yeah, that's <laughs> it cute. Was, it was so adorable. Like and, January yeah, Jones. Natalie Portman as Jane, despite being, you know, Queen Amidala. Like, I get it. It's no one's hating on January Jones. It's just a weirdly yeah. directed performance. Yeah. I think they did Olivia Munn as Psylocke too, where like they both kind of got shafted in the script. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that was a waste of both actresses, honestly. Absolutely. Because okay. if you've ever seen Newsroom, like there is no <laughs> oh my chance God, love Newsroom. that Olivia Munn can't do literally anything. With all due respect, don't call me girl, sir. Like, oh, that is it so is such a moment. Like, so, like you know, you Psylocke. just wish you could hear her say the focus totality of yes. <laughs> you wish you could give her a line in Apocalypse, but you know, I just want to say that at least, at least January Jones, like, I don't know, she fits the character so much more to me. And instead, we could have gotten Sigourney Weaver in X Men: The Last Stand, and that would have broken my heart because that is not Emma Frost to me. Hey, I like the return to the original idea of emma frost is an older woman kind of more on par with charles xavier's age but you know she is not a day over 27 i am on record and by on record i mean i have recorded 60 hours of podcasts about it <laughs> uh, the alien universe is my absolute favorite fictional universe of all time and yes. uh sigourney weaver is for that reason like the goddess of film to me and as much as i would love an older dynamic sexy you know grand dom sort of emma frost and that's d-o-m-m-e i was gonna say <laughs> feel as though i would rather sigourney weaver play like a really suburban celine i don't know but i just can't <laughs> see i can't make her emma sigourney weaver is one of my favorite scream queens in the universe i actually would love her to play cassandra oh that's great Ooh. oh my god yeah oh, i've been yeah. wanting that for a long time i think she yeah. Yeah. amazing that is a brilliant and i mean the writing again was not great for her on defenders like not even so much the dialogue but just the overall concept for her character on defenders was not right great. but man she turned out a performance yes she literally could be written as a phenomenal marvel villain she yeah. really could she's oh, yeah. got the range i just don't see her as emma that's my only that's the only concern i have it's so hard because so frequently if a woman positions herself as older it devalues the quality of her stardom and and her sexuality in a way that undermines the ability to play Emma Frost in cultural vernacular. So it's about finding a woman who has aged but continues to celebrate her beauty. Yes, Jessica Lang. It's Madonna for me because of the insane lengths that she's gone to to look the way she does and the weird accent. Okay, listen. I turn into human diamonds. Uh, okay. Yes, like I know it sounds terrible, but it's actually amazing. Like it has pushed so far through terrible that it is amazing, and she would destroy the role. It would be, we would never stop talking about it. Patrick Leonard as Sebastian Shaw. I love it. 
I can't believe we're talking about Madonna playing Emma Frost and not Dazzler in the same episode. No, no, no. Dazzler, if you're going to have an older Dazzler, that's Kylie fucking Minogue. Okay. Yeah. I, listen, I'm going to go on record as saying I am one of the people in the forefront of, of the Kylie Minogue as Dazzler movement. So, yes. <laughs> I have been posting about, about Kylie Minogue as Dazzler for years. Years. Ugh. If we're doing Disco Dazzler, I want Dua. I think Dua Lipa would make an amazing Disco oh, Dazzler. See, I like Janelle. But I was going to say Janelle like too. Janelle it's got to be a Black Dazzler. Yeah. I want Dazzler. For, I, I want, want Janelle for Storm. Mm, uh, I want to be Dazzler so bad. Uh, but if we're doing a uh, a reimagining of Dazzler as like a modern pop queen, I want Doja Cat. Ooh, another uh, good choice. Okay. She is a good choice. Yeah, I feel like I she does the that. bubbly and the light and the contrast of pink, the brightness. Because Janelle Monet, my only thing is Janelle Monet adds such a gravitas to her every movement that some of the light bubble that I love of Dazzler might be transcended into a more uh, a greater magnitude and I feel like somebody maybe that has a bubblier persona like a doja or a dua would hit that note for me a little better but I also agree I mean you know Grace Jones let's let's go full yeah, on right. black queen let's, Dazzler let's get let's get that original idea of Dazzler back although if Grace Jones were ever to play somebody in a superhero movie, like I don't care how old she is, she's got to play Storm, like Punk Storm. Like, yes. <laughs> I used to be like, if you were casting an '80s one, like it would be like look wise, like Denise Crosby really had that Outback Dazzler look going on. So like, oh for sure, mm. Tasha Yar all the way up to the disco. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again. Now, as always, it wouldn't be an episode of X's for Podcast if we didn't cover some new material. So let's take a look at X Deaths of Wolverine number three, which I say and will reiterate is probably my pick for issue of the year so far. I know we're just finishing out February, but that gives me, you know, a sixth of my books from the year. And so far, X Deaths number three really hit something I needed, which was reinforcing the power of the Wolverine family dynamic. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Wolverine family that we have been waiting for this entire time. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking along the way it has always meant to be on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O and Scout! Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Hola, it's Arturo. Ya tu sabe. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And hey, everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. And I hope you survived the experience, unlike the whole snicked family that Wolverine had to see everybody die. Oh. Uh, wow. Right in my feels. Okay. Okay. Well, we are here to talk about what was maybe my issue of 2022 so far X Deaths of Wolverine number three, written by Benjamin Percy. Our 
art by Federico Vincenti, color art by Dijolima, letters and design by VC's Corey Pettit. And man, we're going to hit that design pretty hard. And of course, overall design by Tom Muller. However, I want to point out for a second that I love how clever a lot of the variants are here. The standard cover by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin is lovely. But in addition, there is the trading card variant. There's a death of variant. There's an Omega spoiler variant. There's an anime variant. I at least like that they're thinking about how to make the variants match the contents. Did anybody buy one of the variants or did everybody go with that awesome classic cover? I got the really, really yellow like phalanx Wolverine and I'm like, fuck yeah, I love it. I got the Lee Injuk cover, all strappy and like studs and tight crotches. I love it. Yeah, I got the Christian Ward cover, the CJW, and it's so sick. I just got the A cover. I mean, I buy all my comics digitally, so all I ever get is A covers. It sometimes makes me feel like the uncoolest kid at the school because like, you know, I will pick up a really special variant and, you know, this series is definitely uh, pushing my variant buttons in all the ways that are necessary. But let's jump in. So I know that I've been checking in with Drew and Arturo on this entire process, but Steve and Nathan, you guys are jumping on to the ex existences of Logan Train <laughs> with this <laughs> issue. And I'd love to know how you guys are feeling about his lives, his death, and or his lives. When X Lives first came out, the first issue, I was so confused. And as that has been going on, I'm like, okay, I kind of see where this is going. But like that first issue of X Deaths, I was like, wait, this isn't a Wolverine story. This is a fucking Moira McTaggart story. <laughs> I'm like, holy hell, sign me the fuck up. And like, I know when the first issue came out, I was like, Nico, fucking Jane's on this in the story. Like, oh my God. Like, yes. Like, I'm loving how the story is progressing. And as especially, X deaths and I'm sure X lives is going to tie in in the same way as it progresses I'm seeing a lot of really strong parallels with not, not even just Inferno but like Hoxpox and how this is really trying to set up this era and these characters and it's really going to kind of move forward the status quo of Krakoa and the woman who was the most important mutant at one time she was the most important woman in the universe she was Donna Noble that's exactly where I was trying to get I was trying to unmute fast enough I was trying to think Donna <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> she is the fastest scientist in Kinroth. I love how this is going, and I've been waiting for a Moira story, and I think spinning it out of Inferno and picking up where she is from that point is amazing. Do I love the turn that Moira McTaggart is making? No, I do not love turf era Moira McTaggart, but I'm still here for the story. <laughs> I've been really enjoying X-Deaths of Wolverine. X-Lives is really interesting to me. I, I had theories they did not pan out very quickly, and the series has become a much wilder and more interesting thing than I had imagined. But Deaths is so far the thing I appreciate more. I love getting a Moira book, even if she is, to me, profoundly petty in it, much more so than I would have expected from her. That's so hot. Yes. <laughs> Profoundly petty is amazing. <laughs> Definitely the lineage, as Nathan said, from Inferno and Hoxbox is really like evident here. And it's becoming more and more evident as time go goes by. I liked the parallels with Powers of X specifically in this issue. And the prominence of the Omega Wolverine is like extremely fascinating to me. So this is this is that like continuation of the Hickman story by Percy that I was expecting. And it's also as a Moira book, it reads so much like Percy's Wolverine series, which which I've, I've come to appreciate over time. Yeah, I'm really here for it. I'm excited to see how it ends. I'm just 
so excited that we have finally manifested and brought into reality an issue with Laura, Scout, Dokken, Logan, all dealing with shit together. Like, this is the Howlett family book that, not quite how I had ever envisioned it, but I'm just so happy to see all of these characters interacting. Like, it's it feels so long overdue. It was an issue of Wolverines, and I really, really liked that. Yes! It was so great! I did not expect this next family to, like, take such a prominent role. I mean, I should have, right? Because first I was like, ex of Wolverine, like, this really doesn't have much Wolverine in it, but now it's got all the Wolverines, and I'm like, sign me up for it, except I need Jonathan, and I need him to thrive. It's really fascinating, because as we have voices that are here every issue, and then we have voices rotating, it's really creating, for me, a powerful cross-section of the ideas and the way fandom is interacting with this title. And Drew, Arturo, I would love to get how you guys are feeling. We've officially passed the halfway point, right? So we are we are beyond the pale. This is officially, if this was Shakespeare, we know the ending by now. You know, he's got to die. He's going to betray his wife. They're all going to drink poison or whatever people used to do. So how do you guys feel knowing that we're halfway through the run? Well, if we're ha- I, I still don't know where this is going, being more than halfway run, just because it's advertised as being like the kind of sequel to Hawks Pox. Those two kind of connected together and these ones aren't really connecting together quite yet. So I'm kind of interested to see how that's going to go. We are just starting to see the threads a little bit. Uh, But yeah, it was fun to see the Logan family get together. Everybody knows I've said it on before. I've been asking for that from Percy for a while. I'm still not clear on how these series are all going to click together fully so i'm still just enjoying the ride this this was a, a couple of twists and turns i agree that moira is being petty but i'm kind of living for it like i think this is you know I, I i like conflict i like tension i like villains i like a good heel turn well speaking of heels that feels like a wrestling term so i'm gonna use that because that's something i know steve knows <laughs> so steve when you came into this you had had some really specific hopes and dreams we we have them on audio recording and I know you already said you didn't get what you expected but how are you feeling at this marker this you know beyond the halfway point sitting with so much life lives and death ahead of us what were your original expectations and how are you feeling about what we're getting oh I, I prefer this to what I what I had expected my predictions were mainly for X lives and I had been under the impression after the first issue came out and before anything else had come out that they were not in fact time traveling and that because I mean Gene doesn't have time travel powers normally that's Rachel and I thought it was a huge bait and switch and that they were actually traveling through Wolverine's memories in the Cerebro backup that he's wearing on his head which just made 100% more sense to me at the time that being said I think that the time travel aspect is way more interesting and because of how it ties into this series I mean the connections between lives and deaths were not evident for a bit but I mean the two Wolverines who are simultaneously traveling back in time to hunt down some who's a threat to everything that they have is a thematic connection and it's one that is becoming more and more apparent so I, I expect that to tie in much more closely to what Mikhail and Omega Red are doing over in X-Lives but I also think that the explanation being that reality 
warping is causing things that previously would have been completely unthinkable, like people's bones morphing into Omega Red's tentacles inside of their bodies while they're being possessed through time, is way more wild and freewheeling than I had expected, and it's it's just been a delight, honestly. I, I know some people have found it off-putting or over-the-top, but I, uh, I've read a lot of Ben Percy at this point, and this is this is what I expect, and it's what I enjoy from him, and it's the kind of just... The, the way that Deaths is tying into Powers of X and the previous future that we've seen, like the future that we see in this issue is not the future that we saw in Powers of X. It's just a similar one in the future of this life of Moira and recontextualizing that with Moira in the librarian's role and saying his his parts is like, it's very cool. It resonates very well with Powers of X in a way that I'm really appreciating and it ties Inferno in as a through line. And yeah, I think halfway through, I'm like, I'm fully invested. I know that it was weird at the start and a little loose, but Percy is a very long form storyteller, as I think has been borne out in the X-Force run. And I'm absolutely ready to see what issue five of both of these series brings me. You had mentioned that there's two lives of Wolverine going back in time to save Xavier. I think there's three trying to save Xavier's, but there's six that have time traveled and we've seen eight of them. So we're waiting to see two. It's so fucking much. (laughs) But part of what it is, is where these data pages are the most central they've ever been. And what genuinely took my breath away is in a book called X Deaths of Wolverine and X Lives of Wolverine. They did not pull their punch. Laura is labeled Wolverine on the X Deaths cast page, and they are not afraid of character name confusion. And I want to know how you feel about three things with this cast page. We have my precious. I ha- So there's this ongoing joke that the second I saw him, I said I needed Techno Organic Logan in my life all at all times. And Drew was like, you're going to get the toy. Don't worry. So, you know, I, I can't stop making that joke. But his name is redacted. Moira is keeping the name Moira X, which I know is probably standing for 10 lives, but fuck you. You can't have the X anymore. You're a traitor. And of course, Laura keeping the name Wolverine. How do you feel about this credits page and how central these credits pages have been to developing the narrative of the of Wolverine series? I agree with Scout. If not two Wolverines, why not three Wolverines? I, I'm all for it, bro. We could name Dokken Wolverine too. Yeah, Dokken has been Wolverine in the past during Dark Reign, and honestly, yep. Scout is a bad name. We keep saying it. Scout is awful. Scout is better, name. but Wolverine is also fine. Yeah, and it's like, I know people, some of the people who have an issue with multiple Wolverines, like, if you know, like, three Toms in your lives or two Jennifers, <laughs> and you can have <laughs> And you can handle it. I'm pretty sure you can handle it in a comic book. Like, it's it's fine. It's Get over it. Very good, Drew. Thank you. <laughs> the reasonable one in the room today. Uh, all right. So I got to say, right? Like, I love Laura is Wolverine from now on forever for me. Like, if anybody ever tries to put her back to X-23, I'll be really disappointed because Laura has definitely earned the right to be Wolverine. There should be absolutely no confusion. There's two Hawkeyes and nobody's confusing Clinton. Kate. There's two wasps. Nobody is confusing Jan and Nadia. Like, you know, there can exist two heroes with the same name and especially in a character with such an extensive family as the Wolverine, the Snicked family. Like, there's no reason that there can't be two Wolverines and that they can, can't can both thrive. And I love how even Xavier comes to her at first and he's like, you know, you are fucking Wolverine. I need you to stop a Wolverine. So, like, I love how she's keeping that and i love like if you notice in that data page like even phalanx wolverine isn't even called wolverine he's just called redacted (laughs) so like i i do love that 
That's my biography, actually. I'm called Redacted. <laughs> Your name is just Redacted. <laughs> Redacted X. Uh, another thing, too, is I thought that, that these character pages were mostly reserved for mutants only. So, like, why Dolores Ramirez and uh, even, well, it's a Moira book, so I'll, t- I'll allow Moira. Evolve and or die. Doesn't that, that just show the significance of the role they're playing in the story? Like, if you look at most of the Corcoan era has had those good headshots in it. And, you know, it may not feature all of the characters that show up in the issue, but it features the characters that have a really strong and important role in the book itself. It has been pretty common for Orcus members to show up as well. Yeah. Who, Moira, is she an Orcus member now? Maybe she's going to be the future head of Orcus? I don't know. That's my hope. (laughs) No, but not. Yeah, right? Like, I really hope she becomes a terrorist again. Like, (laughs) this is such a bummer. I mean, I want Moira who goes to bars and, like, with Excalibur and gets drunk with everybody back. It's not. It's not happening. We've seen what she becomes. She's essentially Bastion. I know. Like she's such a Bastion. And yeah. doesn't this explain so much about Rain's personality? <laughs> poor Rain. Like what she, it does. Like she's poor Rain. She's had a fucking history and a half, hasn't she? Oof. Yeah. It almost makes Rain dating that student completely reasonable. <laughs> no, there's never a reason to date your student. <laughs> <laughs> that I can't justify. I love that we bring Nor- that up so much. I really do. <laughs> Nor can I justify you lying to Richter and saying the baby is yours. <laughs> yeah, you know, I will say this. I'm genuinely shocked this book doesn't have a trick baby. Like, I mean, that would have felt, felt, yeah, felt like a cheap trick that they could have thrown in. But like, so here's the thing that I am most impressed about with this, this particular issue. And Arturo, you said it so well right away. It's the ex, it's the Wolverine family getting right in it. There is something about the way a Wolverine fights that no one else can fight like that. Like, not like in all of comics, because, you know, like, I bet the Black Panther can imitate any fighting style perfectly. Like, I'm not here to have, like, a Taskmaster fight. But this was a spectacular artist rendering a spectacular script of some of the best fighters in the Marvel Universe, and I felt like there was room for each fighter's personality. Mm -hmm. Dokken, Laura, and Scout each fight differently, and no pose better illustrates that than page 18 of 20 in the digital edition where that top panel is docking on the offensive laura in one of her traditional ready to move stances and scouts just fucking flying like she's literally just going through the air and it's perfect so good i love the art in this thank you for talking about it federico vicentini is like really good I've, I've been very much enjoying it i feel like sometimes his style is super reminiscent of joe Matarera, which is something that is like really yes me. meets um, chris Bacolo. yeah yeah i can see that like it's it's but like it's, all it's his in own way like like laura's mask is so expressive with the eyes in that spider-man-y way and then that like scene at the end where moira appears as like an omega sentinel and blasts like her hair is doing that Bacello Matarera thing that hair does <laughs> I don't know how to explain that better, but yeah, between that and like Lima's like super bright glowing like beehive, or I, I guess it's more like a yellow and black striped, which to me is like a bee coloring throughout the issue is really cool. Like I like how it glows off of the black of Omega Wolverine's costume. I like the the snicks that Corey Pettit writes in, but instead of like the normal bloody red, it's like this bright warning yellow. Yeah, I think the art yeah. was was just great for this issue. It uh, very kinetic, very yeah. I think I think Bachelo and uh, and Joe Matt are good references here because it's it's that like really heavy expression 
emotions, almost like cartoony, but then there's this like visceral action to it that that just works. It, it just works so well. I love it. Uh, I was kind of sad to see Dokken just back in like cargo pants. Yeah. Like, his yeah. Costume, with the wet his, hair. His, you know, his X Factor costume was nothing intricate. Like there's no reason for him not to be in it. Just like the big, you know, his big pants and little belt and whatnot. I was kind of bummed to see a regression in his design. But, yeah. But it's all good. I mean, he still looks super hot. He's totally drawn as like that era. Something about Dokken that drives me insane about his claws is I genuinely think his third claw, his like wrist claw, should be like a surprise claw that like comes out when needed. I think left to his own devices, it would make more sense for him to be fighting kind of like Laura with like the two big claws. It drives Yeah, me otherwise like... he's a pair of salad tongs. I'm with you. And <laughs> it just, it just, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, if that was my claw, that would not feel good. Anyways, that, that's a small quip that I have about Dokken. I think people, uh, kind of like Laura's foot claw. It's like the surprise claw. It's like use it in close combat and it surprises your the person that you're fighting and, you know, might win the battle. It's not like your everyday claw. I just got to mention, um, like, just the beauty of the color work in this. It really, like, the way that Dijo Lima uses, like, the colors to accentuate the phalanx elements of Wolverine's outfit really reminds me of just, like, the phenomenal color work that Rochelle Rosenberg's using over in Moon Knight. Just how everything works so well with the pencils and the colors just have this really important feel to them on top of just the beautiful lines work that's already been done for this issue thank you so much for bringing up moon knight so i didn't have to because like earlier when i was talking <laughs> about, when i was talking about the b look i was also like oh, it also looks a little bit like capuccio but i know that's just like a kind of like an italianish style right now but like yeah between that and like the glinting glowing lights everywhere it, it is extremely reminiscent of some of the some of the really good art we've seen in moon knight something that people might not realize is the multi-layered way that colors are done in comics there is something known as a flatter which is when i've had to color professionally because you know you take the job you're offered right so like when i've had to color oh god i do flats uh what my husband does professionally is like proper colors and uh, what many artists need to do especially artists that have like nine and ten titles at marvel they have a flatter come in and do like any color layer for the filling out the shapes and then the color artist comes in and they go over and they make sure that everything is on model that needs to be on model. And then where a colorist's perspective comes in is the shade, the value, and the hue of those individual color palettes that you're allowed to swap between. And I think what I am most surprised by is Diholima's love of expressive opposites and exploration of the color wheel in some total on every page page nearly every page expresses especially once the fight sequence begins expresses some combination of red yellow and blue at all times creating a very holistic color value to each page which is part of what makes the fight so visceral because it's all of the colors but they're sequenced out we don't need to think about them too much and I, it's really a masterwork it's like really spectacular yeah i couldn't agree more i like that i like that tight restrained color palette i always appreciate when a series does that because it is there's no better way to set a mood 
food and keep it going than to choose explicitly, you know, like how you're going to vary them. Yeah, one thing I was going to say is there's the one panel with all three of the Wolverines. And I just kind of wish that Dekan also had like a similar kind of like he is just wearing his pants, but I wish he had some yellow in his pants too to like tie in the Wolverine family of it all. Maybe like like a new kind of outfit for this story. His pants are the same color as like Wolverine's the or um, uh, future Wolverine's kind of blackness that's not phalanxed out. And even the black on the other like on Laura too, it's like matches. So it does kind of work but I just wish there was like some yellow to tie in the family together. I am very grateful though that we can all agree that Dokken does not need a shirt in any team, any lineup, any appearance. No, no, he's allergic. Yeah. <laughs> he swells up. Yeah. My man's pecs need to breathe, baby. Like, contrary to what you were saying, Drew, and I'm sorry, like, I love that Dokken can show up and be sort of like out of yellow because I, I love that kind of sort of puts his place in the Snicked family. Like, it really signifies his place in the snake family because you know even though he is part of it you know he stands a lot more alone than logan laura and uh honey badger scout i hate that name gabby <laughs> i'll just call her you're, gabby you're right uh, though yeah he is he is more of the black sheep i agree with you yeah but it was it was for like a whole wolverine event so i'm not saying that it has to be like a permanent thing it's just like the one-time thing well i hear what drew is saying drew is saying he wants a unique docking in my wolverine 10 lives and 10 deaths of Wolverine box where I get this Wolverine action figure that I want so bad he's just looking out for me and making sure that I get a docking variant I don't see a problem with it right? sure. have we gotten a docking figure I don't think we have Arturo that's your thing do we have a good docking figure out there um I don't think we do I mean I've no. certainly seen I think there may be a dark Wolverine my, one I've but seen, no. there might be a dark Wolverine and I've definitely seen customs made of him uh but I would love to see him in his X-Factor outfit well Let's talk about customizing people. I'll say it. Blonde Moira, not a fan. Not a fan of, like, she's one of those people. She went blonde, and now I just don't like her. And I don't <laughs> I love her. I'm kidding. That's I love her. Me. I love this. She's fucking amazing. But I do love to hate her in a really interesting way. Like, this Moira is the devil, but, like, I'm here for her devilry. And I would love to get everybody's take on the slow, sad, Grace Under Fire-esque <laughs> descent into magic madness that Moira McTaggart has exhibited over the last three years when I mean we thought she was the great white hope we you know she was going to be Neil Blomkamp and then she turned out to be Neil Blomkamp yeah great white hope to white savior I know I was just like I'm still holding on like clinging on to that she is the savior and I haven't like like it still hasn't really hit me yet that she's not and so every single time I read one of these issues I'm like Moira, no, like <laughs> Moira, no, stop! What are you doing? But yeah, I'm kind of over blonde Moira too. It was kind of nice to see her at the end with back in her brown hair. I'm team fuck Moira over here, but like I, I do like the blonde hair. I think it looks good. She decided to go fucking terrorist turfy, and so she's in her like hot girl terrorist turf somewhere. And I like, I'm like, I love. It also, I think, detracts from, it de-ages her to a point, and I don't like another older female character looking so de-aged, and I I, I want to see the older female characters be able to look more of their age, sure, they can look hot too, but like, she does not look like a 50-year-old. 
you think that has anything to do with the hair color or just the way she's being drawn? I think it's both. I think the hair color does add to it. I think the clothing style they chose to put her in definitely does. I think even though she's trying to change her look, I think she would almost like be really conspicuous in her outfit and her appearance as a 50-year-old woman. She'd look like, you know, she's coming in with a skateboard and be like, how do you do, fellow kids? This is all the Valerie <laughs> Cooperfication of Moira McTaggart. Like, all she needs is a pencil skirt and a clipboard. Uh, yeah, she does She does feel like Cooper a lot, if only because Cooper is also a complete piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, a thousand percent. Valerie Cooper. I see it. Yeah, I love how fast Moira is just like, oh, the moment I have lost my powers, and Mystique points this out in the first issue, but like, she's like, suddenly she's talking about the mutants and their devils. They think they're gods. I'm their Judas. Them over there. She's like, so quickly just does yeah. not identify as a mutant anymore. If she ever did, like, she's always been one of those people, it seems, who is just like, yes, this is the best way for me to go forward and for me to lead these people, whether or not I identify with them. She just wanted to be the person who was the savior. She just wanted to be the person who's, who made sure they existed. And she didn't even care if that meant still being mutants. She just, you know, she's absolutely ready to wipe out mutant culture entirely and the the mutants as mutants, as long as it means that she gets to have some laurels of, like, savior. And that seems like that's what it's always been about, which I think is extremely Hickman of her. If you even look at her, like, powers just, like, by themselves of reincarnation, like, like she lives her life basically as a human. She doesn't feel like a mutant. Yes. The only way she expresses her powers is when she dies. It makes sense that, that she wouldn't really relate to mutants in any way because that's, like... It's human passing in all ways yeah. except for the moment of her death. Exactly. Right. She reminds me a lot of, of a self-hating queer. She reminds me of somebody who's really trying her best to go to that conversion camp and just come straight again. And it's just really... Moira Yiannopoulos. Yeah, it's just there's so much about it that totally. gives me some icky. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, hate it. Now, from thing I hate to thing I fucking loved. I don't know that anything has made me gasp the way the last two pages of this book did. I mean, gasp. Like, I ate the room. Yes. And it was a beautiful expression of a dynamic understanding of art in a way that reflected appreciation. This didn't just look like the previous flash forward. It felt like an evolution of the previous flash forward. The One Million Years From Now sequence was transformative dynamic and gorgeous in a way the rest of the book wasn't i would love to know how everybody felt about the stark contrast provided by these last two pages and uh fabulous fucking random gun arm moira I very much loved this sequence. Thank you for pointing it out. And I would I would caution readers against assuming that this is like a repositioning of the scene from Hoxpox in that timeline. If only because like it's very clear that she has taken the place of the librarian. This isn't something that happened off panel in that timeline. It's super interesting. It's it's interesting to hear these words out of her and then to see this like inversion of the Logan kills Moira slash Logan kills Jean archetype panel at this point. It's damn about time that somebody else got their chance to kill Wolverine, especially <laughs> a woman in power. So when I flip the page to see this, like just sometimes the way I read comics, like I, I went to that first panel down there without reading anything. And I was like, what's Omega Sentinel doing here? Because like that arm's so Omega Sentinel. But I love, I, I mean, we're seeing, I'm assuming we're seeing the end of reality 10B now coming back. And that instead of the mutants having one, which would have been 10A, 10B has Moira and her 
were now anti-mutant, maybe Orcus and, you know, AI-driven reality to win. So I love how this might set up now for like a 10C. And it's just so many different fascinating possibilities. Like you can sign me the fuck up for all the weird timey-wimey shit that you want because I will sit there and try to figure it out. It seems as though Moira lived a bunch of lives in which the mutants always lose. Now Moira is in a timeline that since she decided to create Krakoa with the rest, it seems that in this timeline, the mutants always won. And I say that in past tense because as a result of the mutants always winning, Karima Shapandar, spoilers for Inferno, went back in time to alter the timeline and seems to have successfully done that. So now the mutants do in fact lose. And this is the future that we're looking at in which the mutants lose and Moira kills the last mutant. Is that correct? That's what I'm thinking. That's what it looks like. I mean, obviously it could be something else, but that that's what it looks like to me. I'm chalking a lot up to a general sense of not understanding how some of the pieces work. And it's something that we've talked about here and there. I love Ben Percy's storytelling and he's such a big strokes storyteller that I feel he frequently leaves out what might be vital details and leaves us to fill those in. For instance, a lot of people have asked, how does Gene have chrono skimming? powers. I just try and rationalize it that if Rachel has them and this is all about activating latent genes and everybody is getting these weird genes we didn't know they had, they've activated something latent in Gene that became chrono-skimming in Rachel. She has died a number of times. That's a great point. Yeah. So for me, that's how I've explained it this whole time. And I also imagine the Cerebro helmet, maybe perhaps they're able to anchor through the mutant energies of Krakoa through time. Maybe that's playing a component. That's why they need to use the Cerebro from there but I've felt very much like Percy is saving huge details for the end and it's because you know Hickman has said that Hoxpox is something he began working on the first time he ever read Giant Size X-Men and I don't know that even in Ben Percy's wildest most fascinating most incredible dreams he could have dreamt up Hoxpox and then it terminating early in Inferno to have this story saved up since Giant Size X-Men number one you know what I mean, so he is running a ball at a deficit. It's sophomore album syndrome. You have 10 years to write that first record. You've got six months to write the second one. I think he's running such a great game for this second record. I do think that Percy has mentioned that this is an idea that he'd been working on since around the time of Hoxpox and pitched it, but it just had not fit into the timeline properly until around the time of Inferno. So, I mean, it's not 10 years, obviously. <laughs> But it's I appreciate all the mental gymnastics, but I, I do feel like it, it is a drop ball not including Rachel in this. just feels like such a missed opportunity. It would give us a little Gene and Rachel, you know, moment. Like, literally the same story as it's been happening. Just add Rachel to the circuit, right? Because then you could have Gene and Rachel content. You would, their chrono skimming would make sense. Like, I would not have any issue with this whole like time travel-ness of it all uh it just feels like that one little ball he dropped but i i do appreciate the maybe gene is pulling rachel's recessive powers from the cerebro helmet you know whatever explanation of it all but it's a reach i think gene being the one to anchor logan gives a different emotional resonance to the stories and the flashbacks that they're seeing especially the scene with the kin's mother you know not instead 
of in addition to like just have her there just have her there with xavier and just yeah no i agree with you that gene is like the emotional anchor that that logan needs to like hold on to for his sanity or whatever i just think as far as like you know the the mutant machine of it all you're missing a a big gear head that would have just been nice (laughs) especially because we all love rachel and rachel's whole shebang her entire shtick early on was by the way i'm gene but for time travel stories that are sad and (laughs) this is a time travel story that's kind of sad and like rachel could she's a fucking hound like so okay two seconds i have always loved the idea that rachel is scott gene and logan's child i know whatever but like phoenix baby eat a dick so i love the idea that that's also why she's a tracker why she's a hound because she's part wolverine but like she clearly has things from scott and things from gene and so i'm not like trying to be like logan spatter out of the wall but like she really could have played a lovely part in this not that they needed to you know clarify that weird parentage for me but yeah i i yeah the more we talk about it the more i wish rachel was in this story just like in it yeah that doesn't cost anything to put her in there i guess yeah yeah she doesn't like you don't have to contract her or anything like you don't gotta be like hey rachel what are you doing girl and she's like i'm recovering from the x-factor cancellation so (laughs) i'm not ready to be in a title yet it's me it's betsy it's a lot of my ties that's where we're at hey you know character availability like actor availability i love it yeah she's prepping for knights of x she's gotta she's gotta hit the gym she's running her lines just chilling with bob quinn get me from this side get me from this side get me from this side i love this this is my new favorite book i love ben percy's use of dolores ramirez throughout all of his run but like i really love what is setting up to be going on here like whose side is dolores really gonna fall on is she gonna fall on the mute like she really plays this role where you never know like she's such a wild card and you never know what she's gonna do so like this i'm really curious as to what's going on i love how fucking smart she is as just a regular human to realize you know just the sighting of moira after all these years after she died air quote to be taya i just i love how smart she's put everything together and i wonder if this is going to cause her to realize more about the cohen state and resurrection i wonder if she's gonna hook up with moira and if they're going to like you know team up or if moira is just going to like you know play everybody against each other until she gets what she wants i liked it i'm excited to read the last two <laughs> yeah i'm i'm just pumped to see where this all leads i want to see what what the future holds for moira i want to see orcus turn their ugly heads towards her because it feels like that is a last page kind of waiting to happen you know moira gets an email from uh, whichever one of these these fuckers maybe abigail brand has her over for for tea yeah i'm just super pumped to see how these two series are gonna like finish off and tie together and like basically how it's gonna end and how it's gonna tie into what's coming next in like immortal x-men and x-men red knights of x etc i hadn't even considered it till this conversation right now but what if weapon plus is in some way behind orcus I would not put that past Weapon Plus okay. or Canada. Or or Ben Percy, who cut his teeth on Weapon Plus stories and then even brought that character back for his X-Force run. If there's anybody who loves experimenting on humans to make them better than mutants, it is most certainly Weapon Plus, especially if we're possibly seeing the Avengers come back into play in terms of the X-Men and we got the Bucky reference in Life of Wolverine, then it's very likely that in the course of Avengers X, 
X-Men Eternals, we may see some intersection between the Weapons Plus characters, especially knowing that Jason Aaron and Ben Percy both have a relationship with that division of their histories. Yeah, and in current continuity, Weapon Plus is responsible for just about everything awful that has happened since 1941, except for like what Mephisto is responsible for. I'm like, I'm sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Throw in rocks in and we're there. <laughs> yeah, Isaac Newton, uh, done, right? I also need Jane to come back and maybe save the day somehow. I don't know. My queen? Yes, I think my queen should be in every issue of every book yes. at all times. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one last time, and I am so excited to discuss this next piece with you guys. When my Marvel made Chris Claremont Paragon collection first arrived, I did an unboxing video where I was so excited and then I accidentally got adhesive stuck to the cover of one of the issues. And so then in the unboxing video, Kevo, my amazing husband who has done our videos and our art production for the last 300 episodes uh, with an amazing amount of work early on from our original network producer Joey Lewandowski Kevo you know did an incredible job speeding up that terrible time elapse and really made it look so much better. And speaking of things that make things look better, there is no chance that I could have done this show for 300 episodes without the incredible family I have built along the way. When I launched this, it was to spend more time with Jonah, who just, you know, means the world to me. We wanted to share it with some of our friends. And of course, Kevo, that's our family unit. Kyle came in because that's my best buddy in the world. Over time, we added more amazing voices early on, like Matthew Scott with his incredible X recommendations. We, of course, had Dr. Matt Connor and the amazing team of Regina and Dylan who have since gone out and created their own show. And they're so great. I've been lucky enough to be on House of X a few times. What a great team. And we have grown so much. And I couldn't do this without each and every one of you. So from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank Nathan for his tireless support and co-production. My amazing team who always coax the best out of the people in the room like TK, Josh, Arturo. Steve, it means so much to me that I know that you guys are always in there making sure everybody sounds their best. And to everyone else, and that includes, but is certainly not limited to, Robbie, Mikey, Steven, Jake, B-Way, Raven, Drew, Dante, Juancho, Tori, Evelyn, and so many more of you who give your time every week so that this show can thrive and exist and we can share this with the world. I just thank you so much for everything. But now that I snuck that in, to talk a little bit about these two Marvel made stories, I had been very adamant that I had to have this, that there were exclusive stories, and the way my brain works, Marvel really understands how to, you know, kind of manipulate me into serving their marketing plan, right? You know, if you say that something is an exclusive story, I really am likely to pick it up, right? That makes me feel like I need to have that. It's something we've discussed here and there on the show with things like Electra Saga having unique content that meant that if you didn't also have the Electra Saga, which was primarily just prose-filled reprints, you were still missing some canon from the character. So this definitely pulled me in and to promise that they were going to reference 
or tie into major events like Days of Future Past and classic Wolverine stories was definitely a way to draw my attention. I love Claremont, but I probably have a favorite era of a writer that I love, right? There's nothing wrong with having a favorite period. And it tends to be a little bit along the earlier lines, although I do have great affinity for a lot of his later work. To start with, Prelude to a Future Past, which is listed as issue Uncanny 140.5. The first thing I noticed right away is Chris Claremont really had a respect for his art and wanted this to feel in many ways like it format-wise could fit in that original era. You still get that first single page followed by the dynamic double splash, and it gives you a real sense of coming into a film, especially because he's trying to transport you into Days of Future Past just before it begins. That's a pretty significant thing to do, and to do that, he pulls together a team that simulates some of my favorite era of Extreme X-Men. Here, it's Chris Claremont on writing with his longtime and frequent collaborator Salvador LaRocca on art, Guru FX on colors with VC's Clayton Cowles on letters. Now, Guru FX is such a massive presence in coloring these days. Now, at the time, the Extreme X-Men era that I'm referencing, a lot of the colors were done by Liquid, and so it's a little bit of a different vibe, but very much in line with that kind of feel. So especially since a lot of these pages didn't show up too many places online, if you're kind of wondering what it might feel like, you can definitely go with that very early Extreme X-Men Savage Land mini. I appreciated opening on recognizably Days of Future Past Entities. The first page sees Ahab planning with some sentinels behind him. The only thing I will say is that did make me feel as though when I was looking at this story, the story was designed to be read clearly after you understand Days of Future Past. That did make me feel confident that it's less likely that this story would be printed at the front of any Days of Future Past trades or hardcovers because it really doesn't support the reading experience. This is a reward for fans that have loved this story before. So the story sees Rachel chasing down Sage, Bishop, Nightcrawler, and a very blonde Betsy who's going by Bess. And I love things about this. And like, I am on the record. I think if there's 300 episodes of this show too, 288 of them feature me saying and Bishop should be in every story you know and I love the inclusion of Sage who is another favorite of mine but I do find myself a little bit thrown how this could possibly read like Uncanny X-Men 140.5 there's a very strong sense of revisionism to it and I understand that we're talking about dialing back into a story you know some 35-40 years later but I'm a little distracted by how this feels less like an issue of Days of Future Past and perhaps a little bit more like a prequel to X-Men The End in some ways. It just feels very much like this script comes from a very specific moment in time that sort of X-Men reload where Claremont was back on Uncanny and was also doing his Excalibur run and he had Alan Davis on pencils over on Uncanny. There's a really weird sense of I don't know who this is marketed for if it's not really marketed at fans of the mid-aughts who have a mat on for the 1980s with spending capital in the 2020s. And like, you know, I fit into that, so I get what happened, but it is definitely a distraction to understanding how this could possibly be 140.5. And that's when Iron Man shows up. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Why? 
So Iron Man shows up and it's like very Iron Man, like there's Stark references. So it's not like, oh, maybe it's some other Iron Man. I don't even know. It's a really interesting choice. And again, I maybe don't see how it slots in with 140 exactly. I understand that one of the things that Claremont used to love to do so, so, so much at his peak period, especially, you know, one of my favorite stories of all time, Kulan Gath's Master Spell, he interpolated characters from elsewhere in the Marvel Universe, especially characters whose voices that he had such a strong command of. So I can see a guy who understands how to write cocky, smug heroes who still have an altruistic streak in them. I can see him doing Iron Man in this story. You know, uh, it's a pretty clear decision, but I don't get it. And so then they teleport back to a base camp and Gateway's there to not speak, which is, you know, Gateway's thing, but he just doesn't really serve a whole lot of purpose here. So they go inside and they're going to deprogram Rachel and there's so many references where Kurt is like yes this is my goddaughter Rachel and like there is such a weird sense of disconnect from any version of this character and this timeline so it very much felt in that vein of the God Loves Man Kills bookends where if you didn't read the X-Men Black story it didn't really make a whole lot of sense and even then you kind of had to have a revisionist opinion of your version of Kitty. And here I felt very much, number one, I believe this character is Kitty because the character that I'm about to talk about, I don't believe her name is ever said on panel, which is really, really distracting. How many of these characters' names are said once, if at all, is terribly distracting from the final product. And... Rachel is in some sort of stasis and they're going to send in Betsy and Sage or Bess and Sage to help deprogram Rachel. And when they get there, they have Kitty on the outside in this like tech mesh suit as Bishop and Nightcrawler watch on. I'm so sorry, you know, told that out of order because what's up? So they get there and they find it's Jean holding baby Rachel in Rachel's mind. And they're like, oh, look, it's her deepest memories. Oh, no, but it's infected with some sort of nanite poison. So, you know, this idea that there's always some sort of hollow projection of genes somewhere in these stories is a Claremont trope I love. You know, the whole idea of Rachel and the orb that had that essence of gene in it and she put herself in there. And this is very reminiscent of that. And it's in Rachel's mind. So I love how this ties back to like classic uncanny. And then, you know, it's infected and it's, you know, it's a trap and they're going to be defeated. And that's when White Phoenix of the Crown Jean Grey shows up and she's like not not today, Satan, or whatever bad thing this is. Ahab, I guess. Not today, Ahab. And Jean saves them um, because there is always some little part of her in Rachel. And it's really lovely, but it is one of those things where it feels out of nowhere. This was absolutely kind of an all-over-the-map story. And if I had to guess, it really does feel like it was written sometime around 2005. That's sort of post-Grant Morrison- Phoenix end song era. This is some really interesting piece of the puzzle that I don't know that it inherently enhances Days of Future Past, but what it does is it gives us a way to look back on so much of Claremont's art, and that's something we've talked about a few times, whether it was in the additional pages added to the God Loves Man Kills extended cut, which I still very, very, very recommend getting the beautiful oversized hardcover edition. It is really lovely, and I do feel like the Marvel 
Marvel Treasury editions. Uh, they look really nice on a shelf. And, it, you know, the additional pages in here, the Chris Claremont anniversary special. He's had a number of stories lately where he's pulled together threads of a lot of the different aspects of his storytelling. And I have enjoyed that for him as a storyteller getting to examine his history. So even if perhaps a prelude to the past doesn't satisfy my uncanny needs and does some really odd things with it's certainly a worthwhile addition in what is a lovely pressing of a lot of this classic work the actual book itself is so beautifully bound and it's such a lovely piece of classic claremont art it contains x-men number 94 x-men 129 to 137 x-men 141 uncanny x-men 142 268 and the aforementioned uncanny 140.5 as well as X-Men number one from the relaunch in 1991 and the original Wolverine one through four by Frank Miller and Chris Claremont way back from 1982. It's a really beautifully luscious hardcover with a very thick binding and it's a nice piece. So even if I'm not thrilled with one particular story in it altogether, it definitely still feels like a nice item to have on my shelf. Now, separate from that hardcover was a Wolverine story that I was very excited about. I vaguely remember them saying that, you know, it feels like a classic uh, part of like the original Chris Claremont, Frank Miller Wolverine mini. And that's such a huge part of my fandom. I think, you know, we've talked about my love of that mini on this show, 288 of the last 300 episodes. So I feel as though my connection with this sort of era and piece of art is kind of documented. And I was really excited to talk about this Marvel made story, which again, by an exquisite team, and I need to say the art on this issue, is just absolutely breathtaking. Surprise a Wolverine story. Wolverine number one from Marvel Made is by Chris Claremont with Tom Riley on art, Chris O'Halloran on colors, and VCs Clayton Cowles on letters. And this is a separately contained item that sits outside of the hardcover. It has a beautiful Steve McNiven cover. And I was probably more eager to get my hands on this than the Days of Future Past story. This is a little bit more in my fandom than that is. And I was thrilled by the art in this. Really, I cannot stress how much I loved the art. And it starts off the bat with this stunning Logan versus Sabretooth battle set in Japan. And it has so many of the classic trappings and hallmarks of a beautiful Wolverine in Japan story. Wolverine is facing Sabretooth when he's looking to lose and suddenly is saved by an awesome village of badass women. It's just such a great moment for me. And they get the up on Sabretooth, they blind him and they're like, heal that monster. And it's done in Japanese with translation. And I loved these pages. I loved the deft color work, the atmosphere of this opening fight. I felt like, oh man, this is, you know, fuck that hardcover. This is where it's at. This is worth it a thousand percent. And out of nowhere, like classic rogue colossus x-men with storm and you know it's so it's clearly that sort of like 170s 180s era come charging in to save the day uh, because Sabretooth is clearly kind of you know an unstoppable killing machine and he's gonna get the up on this village right and i'm so there this is like magical i wish this was labeled like uncanny 180.3 or something it's so good and of course Sabretooth gets the strike against rogue and 
and Colossus when suddenly he is burned to cinders. That's right, Lockheed's here. Where there's Lockheed, there's Kitty. So a horribly charred saber tooth grabs Kitty by the neck and kind of yells at her that she might turn into Ogin. And she's like, no, I'm not that girl. Maybe I am. No. And so now I'm a little, <laughs> now I'm a little bit lost about the story again. Because I thought this was supposed to go with the original Miller mini. And I have mentioned in the history of Wolverine publication a couple of weeks ago that Wolverine and Kitty Pride's mini, the Kitty Pride and Wolverine one through six, is a follow-up to that original four-part mini. And it came in late 84, early 85. And it goes somewhere between Kitty's appearances in Uncanny 183 and her return in April of 85 in Uncanny 192. So I feel as though there's a lot, again, that he's trying to pack into a very short period of time, trying to get the most out of his page space. And it's just so strange to me because Sabretooth, as he's threatening Kitty, is like, you know, you're more like me than you think. And she's like, no, no, maybe. And Kurt teleports her out of there. Okay. And then Storm and Yukio kind of take turns being like, kill him. And Storm's like, don't, no, Yukio, don't kill him. Uh, Maybe I'll kill him. And then Wolverine's like, don't kill him. It's just sort of odd, right? And the end has a very lovely bit of Wolverine imagery. I love anytime we get Wolverine in any sort of garden scenario. I think it visually works for the character. And I love a lot of the motifs that they go through with him. A lot of the color palettes that they use in situations like this. Overall, I did think Surprise, a Wolverine story, had a little bit more to offer than did the Uncanny 140.5 artistically. But ultimately, both fit into a category of story that Claremont has been writing the last few years, which sees a master of his craft return to so many ideas that he's touched over the course of a very long career. I truly don't know that I think either one is can't live without, but they are certainly interesting pieces of canon that I will myself never forget having read. If for no other reason, they really do represent a paragon of the X-Men and all of the things he's touched because so many of the magical things that Claremont did didn't even make it into this book, into these editions. You could do a New Mutants one by itself and then yet another Wolverine one by itself and an Excalibur one by itself before you even begin to have to look at his second generation of titles when he returned for the revolution and the short run on Wolverine before ultimately taking over Extreme X-Men and making it its own title, returning for the reload. All said and done, I feel as though Chris Claremont is perhaps the writer we have talked the most about on this show, having covered Uncanny X-Men 94 to roughly 200, as well as a number of his other titles and multitudes of one-shots, his work in the modern era. We really could not have had X's for Podcast hit 300 episodes without the breathtaking work of Chris Claremont. And even if these two issues don't work exceptionally to recontextualize the events of Uncanny X-Men 140 or work tirelessly to reset things for Wolverine and Kitty Pride and Wolverine, they allow a man who helped design a universe a chance to play with a number of those toys at once and keep them in a special edition format where they can sit without needing to worry about the ever-changing dynamics of canon. It's really been my honor, like genuinely my honor, to be a producer and editor on this show and a writer and a contributor for 300 episodes. I believe my voice is the only voice to be 
be on every single episode. And it's hard to even say how proud it makes me that people say this show means something to them because that's really all I ever wanted the show to be. Something that meant something to people and gave people a chance to love comics the way I do because comics mean a lot to me. And getting to share that with people, my love of comics is so important. And many people might not realize it, but I'm also a comic writer and I have an uh, I have a story in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology and I couldn't be prouder. And I feel in many ways as though I would not have reached where I've reached if it hadn't been for the tireless personal, social, and professional development I've received from my co-anchors, my co-producers, our fans, the incredible creators who have graced our stage. It's it's unfucking real how many creators have come through this show and how many of them have just been dreams, just absolute dreams come true. How many of them took a chance on, you know, just some silly little podcast and helped not just lend us credibility, but helped further lend credibility to fans like us and our interpretations of their work and our fans and the fact that Ariana Mar and Bob Quinn keep coming back. Guys, get better podcasts, really. And it's <laughs> 300 episodes seems like the most unrealistic thing I've ever heard in my life, but here we are having done it. Thank you. So until next time, when we have a Marvel Fanfare Friday, don't forget Mondays are Magic Mondays, Wednesdays are X-Men X Wednesdays, and Fridays, Marvel Fanfare Fridays. Happy 300, guys. We'll see you at number 301. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, snicked motherfuckers, and have a great day. Thank you.